Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Cody Kremlin Calvet podcast. I was like crawling out of my skin to get home to record this because I was just so excited by all of the feedback you guys have given me, all of the questions. I seriously have like a year's worth of questions, uh, questions coming in over Facebook and email and Snapchat and I've just been taking screenshots of all of the questions. It's been amazing feedback and also just the words of encouragement that I've got over the last few days has been spectacular. So many messages, so many emails of people just thanking me for talking about my experiences and really appreciating my stories. When it comes to, I guess, providing value or telling stories, I think often people get in a trap because their life just seems normal to them and they don't feel that they can provide any value to anybody. But, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a plumber or a farmer or a veterinarian. There's somebody out there who doesn't know the steps that need to be taken to get there. Uh, There's so much experience that people get just from putting in the time and putting in the work. And, And you forget that all of those steps that now seem so obvious to you are really important to people. And, you know, a, a Google search is certainly spectacular in, in getting, you know, basic information. But when it comes to, like, real-world experiences, you need to have a conversation with somebody. You need to hear their perspective and, and get all of the nuance. And there's also an interesting thing that happens when you're talking, uh, whether it's on a podcast or over the phone or in a pers- in-person meeting. People open up more. People are more candid in natural speech. If I was to write out everything that I said on this podcast, I would be self-editing all the time. It it seems like more formal and on the record. And it's not that I have a problem with that. It's just when you write it and reread it and change things and tweak things, for some reason you just hold back. So that's why I really like this medium. And and I'm really appreciating all of the comments back of and making me realize, you know, all of the steps that I've taken that seem so obvious now aren't obvious to people. And, and they're really appreciating that. Today's episode is called Dear Allison. This one was just too easy. Uh, Allison reached out to me via Instagram in my direct messages and she is a high school student and she's doing a project and she needed to speak with a veterinarian uh, via email asking 10 different questions for a final project that she's doing. So I thought, what better way? I read through her questions and her questions are spectacular. So this one is for Allison. From what I can tell on Allison's Instagram, she lives on a dairy or spends a lot of time on a dairy. And I think she lives in Ontario, which is just lovely. So I very much appreciate Allison reaching out to me, giving me great questions, and we'll get into it. So question one from Allison is, how did you know that you wanted to become a veterinarian? So I've talked about this in previous podcasts, but I'll go into it in a little more uh, depth. So literally, I had never thought about 
I'd never thought about vet school. I never thought about being a veterinarian. I knew that I had always loved animals. And when you look back at my photo albums of a, as a child growing up, there was, there was an animal in every single picture, whether it was a dog or a cat or bottle baby calf or riding a horse. I was just always surrounded by animals. That was my natural default. So I certainly had that inclination. Uh, I, I wouldn't say necessarily I was like one of those vet students who at age three always said they wanted to be a veterinarian. I had never said that. I remember my mom always tells this story. She thinks I was like three or four years old and we were watching my veterinarian at the time, Dr. Lloyd Ketty, who I was fortunate enough to purchase his practice a couple years ago in Fairview, Alberta. Uh, I was watching him do a calving and he pulled out his arm and there was mucus dripping off of it. And my mom said, I started gagging and she said, well, you better get used to this. You're going to be doing this one day as a, as a grown up." And I said, mom, but can I at least go to farmer school first? So there was like the foreshadowing of my life. When I walked into a veterinary clinic as I've stated before, I just fell in love with the chaos. I thrive on chaos. I love just always having that rush, that little bit of excitement. And I, I've always, in my past, really thrived on that, that excitement of not knowing what the outcome is going to be. And I always say there's three things in life that give me like a super rush. So the first one is surgery. So I just love surgery because there is always that element of, of that unpredictable find, the animal, you know, going down in the chute. You just never know exactly how it's going to turn out, even though you could do all the steps in your sleep. There's always that element of of uh, unpredictability, even within like a routine thing, like a like a castration, a neuter or a spay. I remember a veterinarian telling me once when I was a high school student that there was no such thing as a routine spay, that a thousand different things could go wrong at any second and you always had to be prepared. So surgery always gave me that like adrenaline rush. The next thing was bronc riding. So I grew up riding saddle bronc horses and rodeos, uh, much to my mother's <laughs> disapproval, although she was extremely supportive and went to every rodeo with me. But once again, it was just that once you nodded your head, you had no idea what was going to happen. You had no idea how that event was going to turn out. Uh, I broke my leg. I got multiple concussions. I got hung up. I just all kinds of rodeo type wrecks. But I think the reason that I loved it so much was because of that chaos, because of that, that unpredictability of events that was about to unfold. And, and the last one is public speaking. So I get the same feeling from public speaking as I do from, from veterinary medicine or from riding bucking horses. And, and I think it's the same thing because you're walking out on stage in front of hundreds of people and you're about to present on a singular topic and it could go any way. You don't know who's in the crowd, how people are going to react, which jokes are going to fail, you know, where you're going to, to resonate with people. It's a crapshoot. It really is. As prepared as you are, as a, much of an expert on a topic as you are, you never know what to expect out of that crowd. And it is certainly a, a high uh, for sure. 
So back to the original question of how did it, how did I know I wanted to become a vet? It was just, I fell in love with that chaos of the vet clinic of never knowing what was going to come in through the door that every story was yet to be unwritten for the day. Whether it was an abscess, uh, a dog coming in needing an enema. I didn't even dogs, I didn't even know that dogs needed enemas when I was in school. I, uh, I got some pretty fascinating stories. The vet was really good at it. He had this very interesting technique of using lots of lube, warm water, dish soap, and one of those one of those uh, calf tubers, right? Like a esophageal calf tuber. He just shoved that right up that dog's butt, gave it this concoction, and out came the moose bones. I, I live up north, so moose moose bone constipation is apparently a big issue in dogs. Uh, just never knowing I fell in love with that so much. And, but I'll go into like a little bit more depth. I remember also thinking earlier on when I was thinking about veterinary medicine, because I had held agriculture and farming at, in such a high regard and was certainly passionate about that, that I also looked at the veterinarians as, as like the, the last stop, the ultimate farmer, the person who knew all of the answers that the producers had. And, and I really respected that and appreciated that. So I think that was also part of it, to be part of that community and to be so well-respected and, and to really be the last line of defense. Question number two, what school did you attend to become a DVM? So I went to the Western College of Veterinary Medicine in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Uh, that veterinary school at the time that I was applying to veterinary schools was the only vet school in Western Canada. Uh, now we have the University of Calgary. So there's two options for people coming out of my province. But at that time, it was one school that was a joint initiative by the four Western Prairie or the four Western Canadian provinces, the prairies in British Columbia. And it was established, I think, in 1968. And that was, that was my choice. Uh, you know, 20 students out of my province would get into that vet school. I, I could have applied, I think, maybe the next year if I had, didn't get in uh, to the University of Calgary. They opened their doors the year after I got into vet school. So now there was two options for somebody from my province to go to vet school. But now there's actually just one. Our Alberta government has pulled funding from the Western College of Veterinary Medicine for Alberta students, and they've rerouted that funding to the local option, the University of Calgary. And I'll maybe I'll make a podcast episode on that alone. It's kind of a hyper-local topic, uh, but there might be some, some relevance within there when we're talking about vet school funding and how the entire system works. I'm really passionate about that. If you guys didn't guess that yet, uh, I think when we're just talking about passion as an aside, I think some people would mislabel my true passion in life to be being a cow vet. And that's not at all the case. I really, really love being a cow vet, but that's not my absolute true passion. My real passion is veterinary medicine, like everything and all encompassing parts of veterinary medicine, the storytelling of veterinary medicine. Obviously, I love that. The history of veterinary medicine. When I was in vet school, when I was an undergrad, 
I would go into the university libraries and I've read every single history of veterinary medicine book that I think has ever been published in English. Uh, I love the history. I love the politics of veterinary medicine. I love the culture. I love the people. I love the veterinary schools. And I love the medicine, the surgery. And it doesn't matter if it was cats or dogs, maybe not snakes, but, but like I really thrived in fourth year in the small animal rotations just because I was so passionate about veterinary medicine as a whole. And it didn't really matter to me uh, which species it was because I was, I was kind of fulfilling that passion. I was being part of the entire machine of veterinary medicine. So that's what school I went to. Were there any courses that you took in high school that you think were beneficial to becoming a veterinarian? Well, to get into the pre-veterinary program at the university that I did my undergraduate at, they had a certain set of prerequisites that you needed to do. And for those of you that don't know, like what courses are needed to get into vet school. So you in Canada and the US, you would go into an undergraduate program and then they would have prerequisites that you need to get into vet school. So you'd have to take so many credits, biology of chemistry, of econ, of English, uh, biochemistry, just, just a variety of different courses. And it differs for each veterinary school. Uh, so I knew which program that I was gonna go into university and then I had to take the prerequisites for that. I just wanted to expose myself to everything possible, even if I didn't need it in high school. So I took biology early. So I was taking like my grade 12 biology in grade 11. I took physics. I took uh, chemistry. I took everything uh, academic that I could. And I did not do very many, like a bare minimum of the, of the non-core classes. Uh, I laugh because I just had a flashback to gym class. So I took the bare minimum of gym class. I panicked in high school every single gym class. I'm not naturally uh, sports-y athletic. I cannot play sports for the life of me. I've never had a passion for sports. I don't watch sports, nothing like that. So every high school sports or gym class was absolutely terrifying for me. I remember talking to one of my buddies, this was years later when we were in university, about uh, about gym class and about school and our high school experience. We'd went high school together. And he, and I never really thought of it, but he was very athletic. He excelled greatly in all athletics. He was a football player and just, just a basketball player and a volleyball player, just naturally athletic. But then he was talking about the academic courses, the physics and social and English and math. And he had that same feeling that I had in gym class in every other class. So at the end of the day, like proportionally, I was very lucky to only have one class that I panicked in. I'm a atrocious, atrocious athlete. So my advice to Allison is to certainly take the classes that you're interested in. Like if there's like a, a computer science course or if you're passionate about cooking, certainly do the fun classes. Uh, but that said, get as many of the academic things as possible. 
even if you don't need them, because at least it's going to give you a little bit of a leg up, take calculus, take everything that you can, because once you get into university, at least some of the stuff will seem familiar and not so foreign. So just take them all. Take way more credits than you need to. You're in high school anyways. Uh, what do you need spares for? Just work. Get used to putting in the work. What? is my favorite procedure to perform well my absolute favorite is a uterine prolapse repair i i have like three skills in life and one of them luckily is putting in uterine prolapses i just love uterine prolapses with my whole heart uh, certainly not fun for the cow. And for some of you guys who don't know what a uterine prolapse is, so this is a cow after she calves and she keeps pushing and she pushes her entire uterus out. So to put it into terms that you could imagine, a cow's uterus is the size of a calf. It's like a big bloody sock that is calf size. And calves are usually born between like 60 and 150 pounds. So basically a human-sized bloody sock that comes out the back of a cow. And then you have to shove that back into said cow with, uh, without killing yourself and uh, without killing the cow. Um, there is a famous cowboy poet named Baxter Black, and he has a very eloquent uterine prolapse poem. And one of my favorite descriptors from that poem when he's describing how to replace a uterine prolapse is it's kind of like shoving a ham down a kitchen sink. Uh, what I do for uterine prolapse is I give the cow an epidural. I frog leg her. So I actually get her down on the ground and pull her back legs out behind her. I tie up those back legs. I'm wearing a splash suit. So I literally like Hulk the whole prolapse up onto my body. I've never figured out how to do a uterine prolapse without getting my crotch super bloody because like it leaks into the Velcro <laughs> and uh, how not to get my socks super bloody because like all the fluid like leaks down. Diana, I think it was the last uterine prolapse I did. I had left my underwear on the floor in the, in the laundry room <laughs> and I got, a, I got a picture the next day from Diana of my under underwear all unfurled with this like this uh giant blood spot right in the crotch and i think she said wtf exclamation mark question mark um <laughs> yeah i don't know anyways so you wash it all off you get it super clean and then you just start shoving it back into the hole uh using your fists or the the flat parts of your hand you never want to use your fingers because you'll puncture it uh, after you wrestle it for a while uh, it starts to slide back in and then you you replace it you put some water i put a few gallons of water into it just to use gravity to hang that uterus uh, and uh, evert the uterine horns back into position. And then I do a booner stitch or a stitch around her vagina to close it up and some, sometimes give her antibiotics if it, there was any sort of tears or if it was kind of a nasty one. Uh, usually give those cows a shot of oxytocin and a shot of Cal Plus. That's a calcium replacement that goes IV and those cows are good to go. So that's my favorite procedure. I just love uterine prolapses so much. And I do remember that 
the first uterine prolapse that I ever saw was the one that I did out in practice. I never got to see one in vet school and I've always had super good success with them. Uh, yeah, just for whatever reason, it is my gift. Question number five, is there anything about being a vet that you wish you could change? I love that question because I never answer that question. People ask me all the time, I've, I've been on lots of different interviews or students ask me the question, what do you dislike the most about your job? And the answer is absolutely nothing. There is nothing that I dislike about the job. I just appreciate it for what it is. Uh, certainly there's hardships, but I just appreciate those hardships. Like it's supposed to be hard. Those are, that's like part of the good parts is the hard parts. If you didn't have the hard parts, then you would, you would never, never have the good parts. Like the last two days on call, um, Emerson and I got called out at noon and we didn't get home till 10, like 10 hour days on weekends, you know, in theory shouldn't be fun, but that's like, I'm out doing the job that I'm passionate about and that I love so much and being there with the people like the, the people today were so incredibly appreciative of my work uh, at the first feedlot that I had uh, there was some down cows with acidosis and I was bolusing them and putting them on IV fluids and at the end of the call I actually took uh, the pen rider's daughter to the next feedlot call with me and Emerson and she was filming and learning all about postmortems and I bought them slushes and like had this amazing experience and then at the next call was at a producer who's very like th it's this is like one of the top show steers in Alberta right now and he wasn't feeling well and I had turned around and had went and helped them out and you know did did a physical exam on this calf and and treated him and gave them reassurance and the look in their eyes was just they were so appreciative and then my next call was to look at a bull with a potential broken penis at at a hutterite colony and the, these people are are my family two different hutterites at the same colony brought me plates of food they brought me smoked salmon and they brought me burgers and they brought me steak and buns and potatoes and and they were took emerson for a side-by-side -side atv ride and were hugging him and just like it and the sun was setting just the most amazing experience like how could you change any part of that job like it is the most spectacular thing so i'll never answer that question because there just isn't an answer. Is it hard to balance between work and personal life? So I also was just uh, answering this in one of the last podcasts, so I'll be brief with this one. Uh, I don't think that there is ever supposed to be balance between work and your personal life. I think one is always going to have to take a, a um, passenger seat to, you know, be second stage. It's always going to be push and pull. It's always going to be hard. My family could take all of my time if, if that's what I chose. My work could take all of my time if that's what I chose. It is a constant push and pull and putting one in front of the other and just hoping at the end of the day that your kids don't hate you and your wife doesn't hate you and your employees don't hate you and your customers don't hate you. Like, But you're always going to be making sacrifice after sacrifice 
on a on a hour by hour, minute to minute, second by second decision. That phone call that rings in the middle of something, uh, an important conversation with your wife. You have to make that decision, that balance. And sometimes my wife wins, and sometimes the client wins, and you're just always like juggling. So yeah, it's hard. You know, and at the end of the day, you have a good life. So, like my, I guess my theme of that, like the last question is, is it's supposed to be hard and you can't have the good without the bad. Is there some parts of veterinary work that you prefer over others? Uh, My general answer is details. (laughs) I don't know if if that would be apparent for for anybody who knows me or has watched some of my videos. I hate details. I'm not a details guy. I'm like a big picture guy. Uh, I surround myself with the most spectacular staff in the world that hold my hand every single day cleaning up behind me not not lit well yeah literally cleaning up behind me at times uh the same thing for diana my amazing you know my amazing support system taking care of everything helping me out uh like with my with my office they're just so spectacular at making sure that i'm not letting things slip through the cracks and i try really hard but yeah, it's it's just the details. When it comes to like the veterinary work, I love everything. Like I love I love pulling maggots out of of nasty prepuces and lancing abscesses and doing post mortems. Uh, out of the the three, I will say this: out of the three main routine tasks that I do as a beef cattle veterinarian, so that's semen testing, a semen evaluation of bulls, pregnancy testing of cows, and postmortems. Those are the things that that are very routine within my practice. I do remember when I first started that I really love preg testing first, postmortem second, and semen testing third. I was not as proficient at semen testing as my partners. And I always felt really frustrated at how good they were. They were like (laughs) semen magicians able to collect those bulls. And I just didn't have the knack or the touch. But after a couple of years and thousands of bulls later, uh, semen testing shot to the top for sure. And now I, I wouldn't put anyone at the top or the bottom of that list. I love every aspect of semen testing and preg testing and postmortem. So no, I would not, I would not change anything, uh, or, or say that I prefer anything. It doesn't matter if it's a broken leg or, a, um, c- consulting or pen outbreak. I'm just, I, I like it all. I absolutely love it all. Do you prefer working with large or small animals and why? Well, that's a very interesting question. When it's just when we just break it down to the medicine and surgery part, I love all aspects of veterinary medicine. I love I loved my small animal surgery rotations, my small animal medicine rotations way more than I ever expected. I, I did very well at them. In my fourth year, I won the small animal orthopedics award. So like a small animal surgery award at the end of my final year rotation. I really love that type of medicine. I really loved 
the pathology. I really love my equine rotation. Uh, yeah, like I really love my equine rotations and I really love my cattle rotation. So when it just came to the medicine and surgery, I loved it all. One of the main reasons why I became a cow vet over any other vet was, was because of the people. I just kept reflecting back that I really love the animals. I really love the medicine. But at the end of the day, your job is working with people. And working with cattlemen, that's my natural default. I, I love those salt of the earth. You know, this core of our society, these farmers are the most spectacular people in the world. So if given the chance to work with cow people versus cat people, uh, see crazy cat lady for details, you know, I, I chose farmers. I chose that because I knew that at the end of the day, I could not derive satisfaction out of my life from, from just helping animals. Animals are ungrateful little beasts. I knew that I was going to derive satisfaction out of the people and the relationships and the connections that I made, just like those connections that I had today. It, it had nothing to do with, with the cows. And, and I'm not trying to sound like crash, crass or, or unpassionate about, about veterinary medicine, about like the medicine part, about helping animals. I, I love that part of it. But it's the people who thank you at the end of the day. It's the people you have that relationship. It's it's that those phone calls and those steak suppers. It is everything. Next question. Do you specialize in certain areas of veterinary medicine? So in general, yes and no. When you graduate from veterinary school, you graduate as a general generalist. Uh, I had to learn about snakes and rabbits and chickens and all kinds of different species uh, to pass my final board exams. It's a multi-species general board exam that you have to pass. So I was proficient in all of those species and went out and started at a cattle practice with no additional schooling. So by definition, I'm not a cattle specialist because to get a specialist designation, you would actually have to have additional training. So typically in the veterinary industry, how that works is after you're done your final uh, year in veterinary school, you would go and get an internship. So an internship could be at a, at a private hospital or at a university setting. And with that internship, you would, it would essentially be an extension of your final year. You have more responsibilities. You're doing much more on your own, but you have the support of the, of the staff, of the, um, what is the word that I'm looking for? The clinician, the overseer, they have a word for them. Yeah. So you have somebody over you kind of watching and mentoring you. When you graduate from your internship after that single year, you don't have a special designation. You would have to then go in and do a residency. So you would go in to whatever the field that you were interested in. So let's say it is equine medicine. And then you do a residency, You once again, usually at a university, although some private practices do offer a residency program. 
and you would be working through a set of, of set of tasks and things that you would need to do that are required for you to get board certification. Uh, a lot of times people will also do a master's or a master's in a PhD or a PhD in that selected field. So you may pick a research topic that's pertinent to equine medicine. So you want to look at, you know, a different technique that you that is being worked on for sewing intestines up after you do an intestinal resection and and you do research project on that that gets published. And at the end of that, after you've fulfilled all the requirements for the residency program and get your master's, then you're allowed to write your board exam for that specific field. So that board exam is uh, a very large in-depth exam of kind of all of the details that would be encompassing of that specific specialty. And you would go and write that exam. And if you pass that, then that then means that you've passed your boards and you are now a specialist. You get another set of letters behind your name and you can say that you're a specialist. So Dr. Elizabeth in my practice, she went through all of that. She did a residency program in in beef cattle health. She took her board exams last year and now she is a specialist in bovine medicine. Very, uh, very grateful to have somebody so talented within my practice. So yeah, that's kind of how specialization works in veterinary medicine. Lastly, is it hard to manage the stress that comes from being a vet? I'm probably the worst person to ask because I don't often stress much about anything. So in general, is stress hard to manage for veterinarians? From what I can tell, yes. There is a lot of different factors going on. Uh, the combination of student loan debt and the hardships that are put on families because of things like long hours in combination with you know job satisfaction, toxic work environments. It, it, it can be extremely difficult out there. For me, I don't know why it doesn't seem to affect me. I feel like I'm doing what I love. I'm doing things like storytelling. You know, I, I for, certainly find a great amount of, of reprieve in terms of stress when I'm interacting and connecting with people, feeling appreciated. Uh, you know, when somebody writes me a nice message, that, that helps me cope with that stress. You know, all of the things in terms of of keeping clients happy and, and worrying about patients and stuff like that. I think once you're like three or four years out into practice, the medicine part becomes easy. It's, it's still difficult for sure, but it becomes mo- much more, uh, you have a much better ability to cope. So for example, when you're driving out to your 500th calving of your career, you know that the situation is going to resolve itself one way or another. You're either going to do um, a manual extraction, you're either going to do a C-section, or maybe the cow will be euthanized. Like that, that is an option within going out to a calving. But you know that at the end of the day, you've survived every single one of the calvings that you've gone to thus far, maybe some near misses, but you will survive. So th- those kinds of stresses, I think, certainly dissipate for most experienced veterinarians. But certainly balancing that with with family and your own personal issues and that debt load can be a huge stressor. And then on top of that, 
you add on the stressors of being a business owner if you choose to go into practice ownership. And I would say that's probably one of the greatest ones because after I figured out how to be a veterinarian, I went through a very steep learning curve on how to be a practice owner, a business owner. It is uh, still a wild ride to be sure. I went and did some relief preg testing at a practice uh, that were very friendly with and they were a little bit behind in their preg testing. So I went down there and I got to act as an associate vet again. So basically just showing up in the morning and being pointed in the right direction and they just say, Kate, you have 400 cows to preg test today. It's here and here. And then you just go out and do it and come back and you have no responsibility. It was very refreshing and eye-opening of like, oh yeah, this is what being an associate vet was like. Because when you're a practice owner, there's no just coming back to the clinic and not having a task to do for the rest of the day. There's always a thousand different things that need to be done. Um, So is it hard? Yes, it certainly can be hard. I think uh, it's just finding that that balance and having that self-awareness of how, you know, what's affecting you and how you're ma- managing that and how you're dealing with that. Uh, just just figuring it out. Okay. I have answered all of Allison's questions for this podcast. I have a ton of other questions. I really love hearing about uh, your guys' experiences. The messages that have came in have been so phenomenal. Like I, like, like I mentioned, um, making I was like so excited to to get back here and and film this. Oh yeah, if you guys didn't know with the podcast, I'm also filming every episode and posting those on my Facebook page, Cody Crumlin Calvet Facebook page, and also on my YouTube page as well. So if you want to see my fancy podcast studio, then please check it out. Uh, Do I have blood on my face? I smell so incredibly bad right now, you guys. Like, I just put Emerson in bed and came straight down here. And I had the stinkiest postmortems today. You should have seen this abscess. I had this chest abscess that was monstrous if i had to guess it would have been five gallons of pus how do cows even live with five gallons of well this cow obviously didn't live but like how did it live before that i don't know okay guys thank you so much for joining me please leave a review uh on the itunes store and subscribe thank you so much bye